Welcome to Dayspring Fellowship. I really am so excited that you've decided to join us for this service. You know, people come to church or watch a church service online for lots of reasons. I don't know why you decided to join us today, but here's something I do know. God is at work in your life, and He's brought you here to this place in this moment to accomplish His purposes. Since people grow here, you will leave changed. I trust His work in your life. So can you. I'm Chris Voigt, and I lead the pastoral team here at Dayspring. We have a fantastic team who work tirelessly to help people grow. We love helping you discover the best path forward to deepening your spiritual roots, whether you are here in the room or watching online, live or on demand at some point in the future. If you are visiting Dayspring today, we want you to know that we are a come-as-you-are kind of church. We don't have any perfect people here. We are all in process, working through our junk, and sometimes that is a messy process. So if you can embrace our mess, we'll embrace yours, and together we'll let God work to clean it all up. And if you're just checking out Jesus and church, this is a safe place to bring your questions and doubts. We're all on a journey. And wherever you are on your journey, welcome. You can learn more about us as a church by exploring our website at dsf.church, by checking out our Facebook page, or contacting us by phone or email. If you need help figuring out the next step to making Dayspring your home church, or if you just have questions, let us know. We'll help you find the answers. For today's service, you can find study questions by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. And now... Let's join our service. I stand here before you today to say and announce that I have graduated elementary school. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. I know it's a big deal. Not only that, though, but I've also ended up and graduated through middle school, perhaps with a bit more trauma that I ever wanted or expected, but hey, here I am. And that's where some people might think my education ends. But no, despite the evidence, on the contrary, I have actually gone on to earn my high school diploma as well. And uh, three years ago, I received my bachelor's degree, making me a proud college graduate. It took a lot of work to get through all those years of education to come out with what is essentially, right, a few pieces of paper that say I am educated, And if you were to add up all the mascots from the schools I attended throughout my educational journey, I would technically be a wildcat, lion, viking, fisherman beacon. I don't know what that means for my identity anymore, but I, however, have nothing on a man named Michael Nicholson. This guy went through the same steps you and I went through. We, he started from coloring in kindergarten classes to writing three-page papers in high school. And just as I did, he also attended a college, uh, Christian college, but he got his degree in Christian education. And he also went on to a seminary to get his master's, but this is only the beginning of Michael's journey. Michael went on to accumulate two more associate's degrees, uh, three specialist, specialist degrees, one bachelor's degree, a doctoral degree, and a total of 22 master's degrees. He has been in higher education for 55 years now, and his goal is to earn around 33 or 34 degrees in total during his lifetime. 
He told a news source that when I complete that, I'll feel like I've completed my basic education. After that, if I'm still alive, that would take me to about 80 or 81 years old, I would then be free to pursue any type of degree. A basic education? Yeah, I thought I was doing great to have like one bachelor's degree. Can you imagine this pursuit of so much knowledge from such a breadth of subject matter? And then to say, after all of that, you completed a basic education. And when considering someone's credentials, we should also remember, though, uh, that it's more than just academics. People who work in labor-intensive jobs, they, they gain credentials by learning to operate different types of equipment. Hunters learn to read the markings of a woodland or mountain trail, and mechanics can be certified to work on several different makes of cars. And while Michael is chasing after 34 pieces of paper saying that he knows things, we are often chasing different kinds of credentials that perhaps are maybe a little more personal. Most of us would love to have a certificate stating that we simply matter to others, that we've lived up to the expectations of our parents and made them proud, that we're actually smart enough, strong enough, qualified enough, talented, funny, creative, whatever enough, that I am enough. And I, can I get all of those in writing and like frame it on my wall so that everyone knows that I am enough? Sometimes we do things to accumulate reminders of our enoughness. Today, I donated blood to the Red Cross. I purposely recycle all that I can to reduce my carbon footprint. I post thoughtful ideas on social media. Essentially, I do all these things so I can label myself as a good person. Perhaps I can say that I have a degree in being a good human being. But is that enough? We know that all of these things can make a, a big impact on our life while we are here on earth. But how far will human knowledge actually get you when it comes to the afterlife? And just in case you've forgotten, Pastor Michelle reminded us in her sermon a couple weeks ago that we are all going to die someday. See, the truth is every man and woman will have to kneel before God and give an account of their life. What will gain you entrance into the kingdom of heaven? Will a college degree count, or how about your good deeds? Today, we're going to find out together. We are in week two of our series in the book of John. And John's gospel was written after the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were written and circulated in the churches in ancient Europe. It's very possible John actually taught from these other Gospels. And towards the end of John's life, the Holy Spirit inspired him to write one of his own, one that showed and proved that Jesus was truly the Son of God so that you and I would believe in him. But before we dive into John chapter 3, let's pray together and ask the Holy Spirit to open our eyes this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, you have a purpose for this morning, for each one of us. So God, I pray that... Uh, as we hear from your word, that that becomes clear to us, that our, our growth is understood this morning of what we should do next and how to enter into that relationship more and more this morning. So God, as we look at what, what qualifies us in your eyes, God, let it become clear what that is for us. In your heavenly name we pray. Amen. So last week, Pastor Chris assigned us some homework to earn, a, to earn our degree in being a good congregation member. 
Just kidding, by the way. Uh, we accept people as they are here at Dayspring, no matter uh, where you are on your spiritual journey. We're here to help you grow and do that with no shame or judgment. So if you didn't read it, it's okay. But the homework was read chapter 2 of the Gospel of John on your own. And I truly hope you did. Uh, if, you, if you did so, you got to witness the power of Jesus when he performed his first recorded and perhaps most well-known miracle, turning ordinary water into wine. And his newly formed group of disciples were impressed by this act and started to ponder if Jesus was actually the promised Messiah. Jesus also visited the temple in Jerusalem and drove out merchants who were selling animals for temple sacrifices and trying to make a profit from those simply wanting to atone for their sins. And the Jewish leaders in the temple that day asked Jesus for a miracle to prove that he had the authority to give orders in the, to the people in the temple. And Jesus replied that if the temple were destroyed, he could rebuild it in three days. They were stunned. It had taken 46 years to build it back originally, brick by brick. What they didn't understand was that Jesus was actually referencing his future crucifixion on the cross and subsequent resurrection after three days. Now today, we are going to learn about two different people who are both smart and credentialed, but in very different ways. One is the Pharisee Nicodemus, and the other is John the Baptist, who we learned about back in chapter 1. And these two figures couldn't have been more different. One believed in Jesus' power, just like the disciples did based on the miracles we just talked about, and the other believed in the Son of God because of who he was. So if you have your paper Bible or if you have an app on your phone, please turn with me to John chapter 2, verse 23. For those of you who are still growing in your relationship with Jesus and may be fairly new to a book study, book study of the Bible, it's important to remember that chapters and verses are not, not part of the original text, but they were added later by Bible translators. And while they are helpful in referencing where to turn in our Bibles, they aren't perfect dividers of the text. So to start, we're going to take the last few verses of chapter 2 into consideration as we move in to chapter 3 uh, to get some context to what we're reading. So John starts out, or we start out this way. John 2.23 reads, Because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many began to trust in him. The power that Jesus possesses as the Son of God is starting to gain people's attention. I don't I don't blame them. John doesn't give us the details of the miracles mentioned in this verse, but if I saw someone doing something miraculous, I think I would start paying attention to that person. But that doesn't mean that their hearts were in it. And John continues, he says, but Jesus didn't trust them because he knew all about people. No one needed to tell him about human nature, for he knew what was in each person's heart. While people were believing in Jesus, he didn't believe them. That's the original Greek word for trust, and that's what it means here, belief. It is one thing to believe in Jesus' miracles, but it's a whole other thing to commit your whole life to him. Don't get me wrong, the miracles of Jesus are truly important and a fundamental part of John's gospel. But the implication is that it takes much more than trusting in miracles for someone to be saved. 
It takes a total transformation of the heart by the work of the Holy Spirit. And seeing and believing, that's not the Christian approach. We, we need to believe and then see the fruit start to grow. But Jesus isn't surprised that this is happening. Uh, he knew and named Nathaniel's doubt back in chapter 1. And he's aware of the fickle feelings of the human heart. Jesus knew that miracles would make him popular, but also knew the truth that he would, the truth that he taught would leave people disappointed or disillusioned. This is not what they were hoping from the Messiah. These newfound followers would be the ones to eventually abandon him when the Pharisees condemned him to a brutal death on the cross. They hadn't truly believed him yet. And that's what leads us into chapter 3 and the story of a man who, after taking notice of Jesus' miracles, approached him to try and find out who Jesus really and truly was. So John 3, 1, 1 through 2 says, There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, We all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Okay, so this is the second time we see the the Pharisees and their mentioning in John's gospel. The important thing to note about the Pharisees is that they were devoted to keeping God's law. They considered all 613 laws equally important and were dedicated to upholding every detail of the law. They were so dedicated, in fact, they created a additional rule books with more laws to make sure that you didn't inadvertently make a mistake and like violate those original laws. For example, Israelites were not to bear any burdens on the Sabbath. So to clarify what was considered a burden, the Pharisees made a rule that you were not to lift more than the weight of a dried fig on the Sabbath. I don't have a clue what that feels like. I haven't really been around figs, but that's how far they went. And the Pharisees were a group of around 6,000 men who are very serious about religion, and Nicodemus is one of them. Nicodemus is a supremely qualified guy in all aspects of the Jewish culture. Not only was he book smart, but he was a very moral man because of his thorough adherence to this law. He was very respectful to Jesus here, right? He refers to him as rabbi, which means teacher, and he's earnest in his, as he begins this conversation with Jesus. He recognizes that Jesus is different. This isn't the kind of treatment that Jesus will get at the hands of other Pharisees, as we will see later in John's gospel. And the NLT says that Nicodemus is a religious leader, but I really don't think that it does him justice. In the original language, it says that he is the leader of the Jews, and this most likely meant that Nicodemus served as a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the governing body of Israel. So not only does he follow every letter of the law to a T, but he is also part of the most powerful political and religious organizations in the Jewish world. But it doesn't end there even for our fellow Nicodemus. He is called the teacher of Israel by Jesus uh, going forward in verse 10. And you don't get this title by accident. Okay, Nicodemus surely has most, if not the entire Old Testament, memorized. He's studied under the most knowledgeable rabbis of the day, and he would be the one sought out if there were any questions about how to live as a Jew. He's truly a big deal. 
And the author of the Christ-centered exposition commentary on the Gospel of John, he explains that if Nicodemus were around today, here is what you would think. I wish we had hired him instead of our pastor. He's got much better credentials. He's more serious about keeping the law. He's made far fewer mistakes. He's more humble. He knows the Bible better. He comes from a more prominent position. He's everything a church would look for in a pastor and more. But Jesus, who knows, who knows all things about the human heart, sees right through him. Nicodemus approached Jesus to learn more about Jesus' doctrine, and he's about to learn a lot. So let's pick up the verse and the text uh, in verse 3. And Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Right off the bat, this is a sledgehammer moment for the impressive Nicodemus. All this work, all this study and effort put in, that was put in for him to become a man of such religious prestige begins to like crumble around him with this truth bomb that Jesus drops here. Nicodemus has lived his entire life thinking that religious credentials guaranteed him a place in God's kingdom. But Jesus tells him, that's not how it works at all. And Jesus emphasizes this point in Matthew 5.20 when he says, But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So to enter the kingdom of heaven on merit alone, you would have to be even more knowledgeable, kind, and religious than Nicodemus here. You would have to be perfect, which is impossible. And that's the point. Entrance to heaven is out of reach, even for the most moral, upstanding person. These earthly credentials meant absolutely nothing. The solution is to be born again. And instantly, Nicodemus, who should have all the answers, is left confused. Uh, he says, what, what do you mean? exclaimed Nicodemus. How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? From the Jewish perspective, entry into heaven was based on one thing. Do you follow the law? It was about obedience. Gentiles were allowed, but as a Gentile, you needed to be circumcised and baptized. You became a part of Israel. But Jesus, as he so often does here, he flips the script. It doesn't matter who a person is or what they do. The only thing keeping someone out of heaven is their own sin. Now, Nicodemus is no fool, and so his reply, I think, is more rhetorical than, like, uneducated. What do you mean, Jesus? How do you re-enter? How does the biology work? No, he's not bumbling about this. He's genuinely curious. And so Jesus here is going to give him a very straightforward answer. Jesus replied in verse 5, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say, you must be born again. So Nicodemus receives the answer that he's missed in all the years of his study. It is the Spirit of God who makes a person alive and new from the inside. It's not about heritage or religious rule-keeping. It is about the total transformation of a person from the inside and from the outside. And Jesus teaches that you may have been born of water, meaning a physical birth, 
Uh, but you also need to have the birth of the Spirit. I really like how Warren Wearsby put it in his commentary. He says, just as there are two parents for a physical birth, so there are two parents for spiritual birth, the Spirit and the Word. The Spirit of God takes the Word of God, and when the sinner believes, imparts the life of God. So while we are celebrating a baptism today, this is very exciting, Jesus is not suggesting that being born again requires water baptism here. The emphasis is on belief. No amount of physical water can affect a spiritual change in a person. The evidence is the witness of the Spirit within. And the brilliance of this is that God is saying, I don't want you to clean yourself up. I want, you to make, I want to make you brand new. All you have to do is believe. Jesus goes on to describe the Spirit this way. Pick up in verse 8. The wind blows wherever it wants, just as you can hear the wind but can't tell where it's coming from or where it is going. So you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. How are these things possible? Nicodemus asked. Jesus replied, you are, res- you are a respected Jewish teacher, and yet you don't understand these things? I assure you, we tell you what we know and have seen, and yet you won't believe our testimony. But if you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, how can you possibly believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the Son of Man has come down from heaven. So Jesus uses the wind as an example to say that you can't do anything to make yourself come alive spiritually. You may be able to try and clean up your life from the outside, but you can't remake the inside. The only way to be born again is for the Spirit of God to do it all. We can quit bad habits and start treating others with respect, but none of that cleans the soul. And this wind imagery would be familiar to Nicodemus. The word wind in both Hebrew and Greek can be translated as spirit. This would most certainly make Nicodemus recall the events in Ezekiel where the prophet saw a valley full of dead bones, but when he prophesied to the wind, the spirit came and gave the bones new life. And Jesus is shocked that Nicodemus has reached one of the highest standings in Israel and hadn't understood what scripture was teaching. He was dead and hopeless, just like those dry bones in the valley along with the rest of the nation of Israel, because they needed the Spirit. And we are also dead in our sin if we do not have the Spirit. We may not know where the wind is coming from, where it's going, or why it's blowing, but we know when it's there. It's an unmistakable mark on a believer's life, and that mark is a belief in Jesus. And belief is a powerful thing. Having respect for Jesus or a good opinion of Jesus isn't enough. It requires faith. And Nicodemus didn't yet have faith. And Jesus tells him that if he can't understand these earthly earthly illustrations, there is no way he is going to understand the deep spiritual truths Jesus came to reveal. Now, as we head into this next section of Scripture, we must once again pause and make sure we consider the context. John 3.16, it was one of the most memorized scriptures in history. I believe it's for good reason. It's a succinct explanation of the gospel that can be more powerful when we add the surrounding verses. So as we go into this next part, remember, this is still Jesus talking to a skilled theologian to explain an old concept 
uh, made new. So he expertly pulls in an Old Testament story. In verse 14, and as Jesus, as, sorry, as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. The reference here is Numbers 21, 4 through 9. It's a story of a time uh, when the nation of Israel rebelled against God. And God sent serpents that bit the people because they had forgotten that he would provide for them. And God told Moses to make a bronze snake and put it on a pole. And when, any, when anyone was bitten by that snake and looked at it, they would not die, but they would be saved from their wounds. And this scripture is going to be fulfilled through the life of Jesus. He would be crucified and lifted up, naked and exposed to pay for our sins. Today, anyone who has faith, believes, and looks to Jesus as their Savior can be saved from their deathly wound, the wound of sin, the wound that, would, that was inflicted by the serpent in the Garden of Eden, but whose head would be crushed by Jesus. And all of the Old Testament pointed to Jesus, and Nicodemus needed to see it plainly. So Jesus goes on from here to, to say the words that so many memorize in Sunday school as children. It says this, For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God sent his Son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only Son. So God sent his son to die, not only for the nation of Israel, but for the world. And this too would be a revolutionary idea to Nicodemus. How is a person born from above? By believing in Jesus Christ. Why would the Son of God need to be publicly executed? These verses provide the answers. And last time I preached, I spoke on the lies we believe about God. And one of the lies that is so easily absorbed into our hearts and into our minds is that though we know God loves us, somewhere deep down we think he's actually mean and vindictive. He's ready to strike whenever we mess up. But that couldn't be further from the truth. While a holy and just God must punish sin, Jesus went to the cross to pay our debt. There, there is a cost for our salvation. Because of our sin, Jesus went to the cross and died a painful death so that we could be, become right before God. It wasn't the nails that pinned Jesus to the cross. It was love. That's a free gift for anyone who believes. I imagine it's at this point that maybe a twinge of regret was setting in for Nicodemus if he was truly tracking with Jesus. I spent how many years training so that I would be accepted by God, but all it took was belief. And that belief is rewarded. To have eternal life with the perfect God and loving God once and for all. Death will not have the final say. Life incorruptible, abundant life is offered to all those who will receive it through faith. But you have to receive it. Not being impressed by miracles or doing good deeds. Anyone still has the choice not to believe in Jesus. 
Judgment waits for those who do not accept Jesus' sacrifice for their lives. It's everyone's individual choice. God doesn't condemn anyone because we condemn ourselves if we do not believe. God provided the solution. The Son who was lifted up, we simply have to look up and believe. So Jesus had helped Nicodemus open his eyes to a God who is full of grace and love, not one who demands his creation wither beneath the weight of hundreds of rules for holy living, but who flourishes within the law of love. As Jesus wraps up his answer to Nicodemus, we observe the result of the only credential that matters, belief. Nothing else matters, and nothing else can grant you access to the kingdom. Not degrees or knowledge or a fancy for miracles. It takes a belief in God with your whole heart. But if we believe, we also need to obey, otherwise it isn't true belief. We pick up back in verse 19. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light so others can see that they are doing what God wants. And Jesus uses the imagery of light and darkness here to illustrate that we desire the darkness, right? Darkness feels deceptively safe. You get to live your own life and not let anyone else in. You can choose to do any number of evil things without anyone seeing them. And we try to keep God out as well, even though we know he is all-knowing and sees everything we try to hide. We act like Adam and Eve who covered themselves in shame after disobeying God and tried to hide from him. We do this because the closer you get to God, who is the light, the more your sins are exposed. That can be very convicting and uncomfortable, which is why so many choose to stay in the dark, separated from God. They continue to be obedient only to themselves and do evil. But the darkness is not safe. Without God, there is no eternal life only eternal death and separation from him. There is no belief happening because they continue to live in the opposition to the truth. The flip side is exposure to the light can be rewarding, freeing, and actually safe. Jesus died so that we didn't have to hide from God, but rather accept his grace and mercy because Jesus paid the price for our sin. Those who step into the light do so because they have faith and they believe. Right? Be- belief and obedience are linked. You cannot believe in Jesus if you continue to live in disobedience to him. And as the very model of religion, Nicodemus had totally removed belief from the equation. Religion is ultimately nothing more than faith in self, trusting one's own ability to be good enough to impress God. And thankfully, this confused man came to the light. He found the light of the world. The word made flesh before his very eyes, and he truly believed. So now John, he's going to turn his attention to another man who had credentials of his own, but of an altogether different kind. John the Baptist was the one the prophet Malachi foretold in Malachi 4, 5 through 6. He wrote that, look, I am sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. 
His preaching will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. So John, the Baptist's qualifications, came from God, which made his outlook on his whole role in the Jesus story a bit different than Nicodemus. And John was sent as a forerunner to Jesus. And a forerunner, in this case is not a car, but was someone who was sent ahead to prepare the way for someone of great importance who was coming after him, such as a king, a king's representative, or a governor. In John's case, he was the forerunner preparing the way for the Messiah, And John was announcing that the Messiah was about to arrive on the scene, and people needed to be prepared by turning from their rebellious ways and be baptized. And at this point, right, Jesus is here. And John the Baptist's ministry and Jesus' ministry overlapped, which means there was room for potential competition, not between John and Jesus, but between those who followed them. And it's true that when there are two leaders who are involved in similar work, it's really easy for both friends and enemies to be caught up in competition and in in comparison. So as we read and pick up in verse 22, Then Jesus and his disciples left Jerusalem and went into the Judean countryside. Jesus spent some time with them there baptizing people. At this time, John the Baptist was baptizing at Enon near near Salim because there was plenty of water there, and people kept coming to him for baptism. This was before John was thrown into prison. prison. So up to this point, Jesus had remained in Galilee, then traveled to the temple in Jerusalem. And John was in Judea, but now Jesus had arrived in Judea near John the Baptist's turf. And both were baptizing, and people were, they were attracting followers, and being true to their fallen human nature, arguing and complaining breaks out amongst John the Baptist's disciples. John replied, uh, let's see, a debate broke out, sorry, verse 25, between John's disciples and a certain Jew over ceremonial cleansing. So John's disciples came to him and said, Rabbi, the, the man you met on the other side of the Jordan River, the one you identified as the Messiah, is also baptizing people. And everyone is going to him instead of coming to us. Man, you can just hear the complaints in their voices. Their allegiance was to John the Baptist, not this weird newcomer. They thought of Jesus as a competitor to their ministry, even though John had already identified Jesus as the Messiah when baptizing him. John's disciples even make the claim that everyone is going to him instead of them, even though it seems that their ministry is going pretty well. So you see, jealousy is at the heart of this issue. So let's see what John has to say and who should be getting the attention in this tension. Verse 27, John replied, no one can receive anything unless God gives it to them. Uh, from heaven. You yourselves know how plainly I told you, I am not the Messiah. I am only here to prepare the way for him. And while Nicodemus was a man who made himself, John realized that his credentials weren't anything to be earned, but were given to him by God. And he also speaks to the fact that he is not the Messiah. John understands the purpose for which he had been called to point people to Jesus. It's not and has never been about him. And here, with his disciples, he tells them again, Jesus is the Messiah. Go follow him. 
You see, this is true leadership. On a project you manage, it can be easy to take all the credit, even if it was the people you led that did the hard work to get the job done. And John had an attitude of humility and realized that without God, he was nothing. He gave credit for his ministry where it was due, and it was due to God. And it wasn't anything John did that made him special. It was his radical obedience to God. So John continues in his response. It is the bridegroom who marries the bride, and the bridegroom's friend is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, I am filled with joy at his success. He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. So John uses an illustration that is simple and totally understandable. A wedding. And at my wedding, it was all about me and my wife. Though my best man did steal the spotlight for just a second by joking that he lost the ring, Spencer was a great person to have by my side during my wedding day. He was solid and kept the rest of my groomsmen organized, and he recognized that it was my special day, and I was able to return the favor a few years later at his wedding. I was beyond happy to make his day as special as possible. I decreased so that he could increase. And this illustration would have been very familiar to John's disciples as well. God had a marriage covenant with the nation of Israel. Of course, Israel was rarely faithful to that covenant. And John is trying to help his followers be faithful here. And today, we the church, we're the bride of Christ. And someday Jesus is going to return for his beloved bride. And we eagerly anticipate that day. But it's important to know that John's role was not insignificant and it didn't just end when Jesus came on the scene. It just decreased. John continued to faithfully tell people about Jesus, the Messiah. So finally, we arrive at the third qualified person in the second chapter of John, and that, of course, is Jesus. We've heard what the Son of God is like from Jesus himself, and so now John is going to back that up as well. He has come from above and is greater than anyone else. We are of the earth and we speak of earthly things, but he has come from heaven and is greater than anyone else. John proclaims the supremacy of Jesus first. And John testifies that Jesus is greater than anyone else and that Jesus can testify better than anyone else. Why? Because Jesus came from heaven to earth. He is the only one to do that in history. And Jesus was there at the beginning and was the creator of everything. He reigns supreme. In verse 32, he testifies about what has, what has seen and heard, but few believe what he tells them. Anyone who accepts his testimony can affirm that God is true, for he is sent by God. He speaks God's words, for God gave him the Spirit without limit. Secondhand knowledge is sometimes questionable, but with Jesus, we don't have to doubt his word. Jesus speaks from firsthand knowledge. And in this area, Jesus has a one-up on the knowledgeable Nicodemus. The Pharisees relied on interpretations of Scripture, but Jesus was the word made flesh. He knew all. The testimony of Jesus is reliable and it's true. The safest thing in the whole world is the testimony of Jesus. Picking up in verse 35, the father loves his son and has put everything into his hands. And anyone who believes in God's son has eternal life. Anyone who doesn't obey the son will never experience eternal life, 
but remain under God's angry judgment. So John concludes his correction of his disciples with the same kind of warning that Jesus gave to Nicodemus, that unbelief incurs God's wrath. This sounds harsh, but it's consistent with God's character. God's wrath is nothing less than a reasonable ex- expression of his righteousness, char- and his righteousness and his character and his unfailing love when confronted with evil. So notice that this verse, in this verse, the contrast to believing is not disbelieving, but disobedience. Again, this is a crucial aspect of belief. Fascination with miracles is just a surface-level response. They're flashy, easily recognizable, but they don't require a response. True belief requires a response. If I believe that there is actually a subduction zone off the coast of Oregon that is long overdue to slip and cause massive destruction in our state, then I'm going to have to have developed like survival skills and purchase supplies for my home. My belief is followed by my actions. And when we believe, we are putting our full faith in Jesus as our Savior and submitting to him as Lord. You can't just accept half of Jesus. You can't say to him, well, I accept your forgiveness of my sins, but I really don't want to live your ways. It's a package deal. Real faith always results in real fruit of obedience. So the only credential that matters is your own testimony. Are you going to go out into the world believing that Jesus is truly the Son of God? Not just because of his signs or his miracles, but because you have fully put your trust in him. It takes a personal living relationship. When we receive Jesus into our lives, we, we share with his very life and become empowered by the Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter if you think you're a really good person or a really bad person. The only thing that will matter is whether the Spirit of God has transformed you from the inside out. So has he? Have you accepted the free gift of salvation given to you? And if you have, do you live like it? Now, I'm not a very demonstrative or really excitable person, but I think Christians should be some of the most enthusiastic people on the planet. And with that enthusiasm should follow obedience. With that obedience should follow real life change in your life and a desire to see others experience the gospel in their own lives. Jesus should change every area of our lives. Are you Nicodemus, or are you a Nicodemus, chasing after credentials that prove that you are enough, or are you a John the Baptist who knows their role and is secure in their identity as a child of God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for your son's sacrifice. As we observe what he taught to Nicodemus and what John already knew about Jesus, God, that you sent your one and only son to die for us so that we may believe. So God, as we, as we go out from this place, let our faith in you thrive and grow. And let us reach others so that they may believe as well. There are plenty of people who know about God, that know about Jesus. But God, you want us to go out there and help them put their faith in it. So God, empower us by the Holy Spirit to do that. And let us be assured of our belief as well. It's in your heavenly name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. 
Let me encourage you to download the study questions by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. Working through those questions alone or with others will help the truth of God's Word find its place in your life. Please reach out if you have any questions or want help on your spiritual journey. My email address is on the screen, or you can call the church during the week. This ministry is made possible because of people like you, people who believe in what God is doing through Dayspring. Your financial generosity is proof of God's work in your life. If you're just checking us out today, please know that we don't expect you to give anything to support Dayspring. That is the responsibility of our Dayspringers. Just enjoy the rest of your day. If you'd like to start giving, we have three easy ways for you to get us your gift. Please see the online giving section of our website or text GIVE to the number on your screen or mail a check to us at the address you'll find on our website. Also, thank you for liking and sharing and following Dayspring on whatever platform you're on. It means a lot to me when you pass on the good news of Jesus to your friends and family. Until next week, may you experience God's favor and blessing in your life.